You're listening to DraftKings Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Remember when we used to do this on Cinephobe? Did we? Didn't we? Oh, the clap? Zach went on AFE and said they did it. And was like, these guys do this, and it's real professional, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, sure, we can do that. It's so funny. He's so easily duped. This guy, Zach Harper, he's such a doofus. He just follows along. Did Ian Carmel do this? Did Ian Carmel do that? He just wants to do everything Ian Carmel. It's like... Jason Tatum with his Kobe pictures. You see that's the latest one? Like, there's a picture of Kobe lying down with a basketball, and now Jason Tatum has made his profile picture the same thing. Yeah. Get a grip, man. Zach Harper is a Carmel stan. Yep, he is. Carmelized. Zach Harper's a Carmel stain as well. Ooh. The texture, the flavor, <laughs> the color. It's <laughs> the consistency. Cliff it, Maze. <laughs> My assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA Illuminati. I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball Illuminati. <laughs> Welcome to a very special episode of Basketball Illuminati. You already know it's special because I'm doing the intro and Tom isn't because he's not here. He's on his honeymoon anniversary vacation. What's that called, Maze? I don't know. You just threw a lot of words at me. It's an anniversary retreat. Yeah, he's taking a week off, him and the missus. And so 
Just me and Anthony Mays holding down the fort, trying not to burn the place down. Too many relics and candles around the Illuminati headquarters. We're trying to channel the spirit of our missing comrade, but luckily... We still have a show that he was a part of in the bank. Yes, we do. We have a conversation with Professor J.A. Adande of Northwestern University, former ESPN NBA reporter, former writer for the LA Times and various other prestigious publications across the land. He returned a few years back to his alma mater of Northwestern to teach the journalism game to a new generation of young up-and-comers, but we got him to sit down with us to talk about the greatest disciplinary action in the history of the NBA prior to Donald Sterling. That's right, the Joe Smith contract. You don't know what the Joe Smith contract is and what happened there in Minnesota? Don't worry, we'll fill you in on all the details in a little bit. But first... You are listening to The Agenda with Tom Haverstrow and Amin El Hassan. On the agenda, you would think it's a slow time in the NBA calendar. It's the end of July. Summer League is over. All the deals have been done. But no, the Kevin Durant thing finds legs every single week. They won't let it die. So we will have something to talk about, which I'm sure the folks over at the league office are very, very pleased about the fact that, oh, we just can't stop talking about new NBA happenings. And the newest NBA happening was that there were some discussions between the Boston Celtics and the Brooklyn Nets vis-a-vis a Kevin Durant deal where Boston offered Jalen Brown and a cup of coffee for Durant and the Nets allegedly, reportedly, according to Sean Ferrani of The Athletic, countered with, we need Marcus Smart in that deal as well. Mays, are we going to do the mainstream thing and talk about the merits of this deal and who would make out better which way? Or are we going to open our third eyes right from the very get-go? Oh, I mean, I mean, I'm not interested in the potential of this. I'm more interested in why it's considered news that we have trade discussions, that we have speculation. Of course. Of course, we're just trying to stir the pot. Like you said, this is a sleepy time for the NBA. We're into the doldrums. We can afford to send Tom Haverstow to hang out with his wife. That's the type of time in the NBA it is. The man gets to have family time. That's how you know ain't shit happening. Here's my take. If you're the Brooklyn Nets, you have Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant has demanded a trade. But Kevin Durant is unlike most superstars, Mays, in that Kevin Durant isn't going to be the guy who sits out. This guy loves to hoop too much, respects the game too much, want to be on the floor, even though he doesn't want to be on the floor wearing that jersey. In order for the Nets to not alienate that from happening, what do they do? They have to make it clear to him that we're doing everything within our power to find a deal for you. We're not going to take a discount on you, Kevin. We're going to do the deal that makes sense for us, but we are actively and aggressively pursuing a deal. And through that lens, he will continue to show up and play once the season starts if this thing drags out into the season. Maze, how do you prove that you're actively pursuing deals? Maybe you let something slip. 
the leak. Be let a little conversation. A little leaky weaky. Fall out of your pocket. Oops, oops, oops. Is this my, I don't think this one's mine. Adrian, is this yours? Oh. I think you might have dropped this. I think it has your name written on it. Yeah. Byline and everything. So that's the game you play. You leak something out there. Now, it does two things, by the way, Maze. One thing it does is prove and demonstrate to Durant that there is an earnest effort, an earnest attempt out there to get him traded and get him traded to a good team where he'll have a chance to compete for a title. The other thing it does, though, much like the Minnesota deal that was reported by Vinnie Goodwill earlier this summer, it sends a flare out to the entire NBA saying, You want our guy? You got to give us two of your starters off a NBA finalist caliber team. An all-star and a defensive player of the year. Oh, and by the way, you got to give us picks on top of that. Every time they ask for stuff, every time it's leaked what Brooklyn demanded of the other side, it demonstrates the massive haul, the high price to get in where you fit in if you want to do this Durant thing. Don't come to us with no Tyler Hero and Dwayne Dedman bullshit. We want the real stuff. We're going to see this periodically because, in a way, if you open your third eye a little bit wider and think back, because we learn from history, ladies and gentlemen, we learn from the mistakes of those who came before us. Otherwise, we are doomed to repeat the same mistakes they made. So when Jimmy Butler told the Minnesota Timberwolves, I don't want to be here anymore. He did that in April, May of 2018. So from that spring, really, of 2018, all throughout that summer and leading into training camp, his message was clear. And yet the Minnesota Timberwolves were not quite understanding or appreciative of his very clear, blunt message of get me out of here. As a result, we have the incident that happens during training camp where he shows up to practice, demolishes the first stringers with the third stringers and may or may not have had his watch on. I don't believe that part for one bit. But the point is, the Timberwolves did not demonstrate to Jimmy Butler enough that they were trying in earnest to get a deal done for him. And so he understood what many NBA players in that position understands that as long as you're a professional and you're doing the right thing, they're going to just assume you're cool. The only way to affect change, impact real change, is to make a f***ing mess of it. So he shows up and he makes a mess of it. Not long thereafter, he is traded. Kevin Durant, why I don't believe he wants to make a mess. I don't think he's that kind of guy or that's not his countenance or his demeanor or his approach. If he feels like there's no progress, no earnest progress being made, there's going to come a time where he's going to have to realize, I got to make a mess. So in order for Brooklyn to at least delay that from happening, they just have to keep these wheels a-churning and a-turning, letting everybody know, look how busy we are. Oh, oh, I've got a piece of paper in my hand and I look stressed like Costanza. It's interesting. I mean, I really thought when the initial trade demand was made shortly before free agency opened and all these deals could be made that it would have a greater effect on the Brooklyn Nets. I thought it was strange that there were four years left on his deal. I thought it was curious 
where we were headed with what it means to sign a contract, sign an extension, the level of commitment. But we're now a month later, still at the same place. And it's very possible we'll go into training camp still in the same place. And like you've said, they've leaked these announcements for two reasons, not just to appease Kevin Durant and say, we're trying, but also to say the price is too damn high. Yeah. No one's going to be able to give us the right recipe for what we're looking for because he's a premium asset. Right. And I think we're headed to, <laughs> I think we're headed to what you just described. The ball is going to be back in KD's court and he's going to have to make a mess. And that's really up to him how he wants to go about that. Otherwise, I don't think he's getting traded. The beauty of the situation for him is that he doesn't even have to do anything until at least camp opens. As of right now, he's chilling. He's in L.A. He's working out at the Sports Academy up there in Santa Barbara, having a regular KD offseason. Making waves on TikTok? Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. They covered it on Undisputed. That's what I'm saying. I mean, that's the times we're in. Yeah. Kevin Durant joining TikTok is now our news. That's the agenda today. That's the A block right there. He doesn't have to do anything. Right now, everything is cool up until camp opens. That's going to be the next mile marker between now all the way to the last week of September. Talking about two months of this at least. And as we approach camp, that's going to be the beginning of a little bit of rumbling because teams are going to want to say, well, if I get a chance to have them, I want to have them here for camp to go through all the things. And then after camp opens, the next mile marker is going to be start of the season. And then after that's December 15th, because that's when deals signed last summer, else it would be traded. The next thing after that is going to be the trade deadline and so on and so forth. So we have all of these, what's the thing they call it on Loki? Nexus events. We have these moments laid out before us. The question is, who gets more desperate first? Will it be the Brooklyn Nets? Will it be one of these other teams that's saying, look, Durant is out there to be had. We can go have him. Who gives a shit if we throw in an extra pick or if we throw in an extra depoy or whatever? Or will it be Kevin Durant himself who either says, I'm sick of being here I want out and I'm not showing up. Makes the mess. Or what if Durant is so desperate to play basketball, he's willing to play the whole year out? That sounds extremely desperate. Extremely desperate like I am for a vacation. You should get married and then have an anniversary. Maybe you could do that. Let's try and knock that out real quick before next show. Shout out to Tom. I'm going to open you guys' third eye on something else. This is like an NBA, I won't say secret because it's not a secret. But this is an NBA thing. If you work in basketball around the NBA, you are trained or conditioned to have life event things happen between mid-July and basically end of September. This is the time you do that stuff. Have kids, get married, even things as crazy as siblings' weddings. It all happens now because the idea is you can attend this without having to skip out on anything. And for two, if it is an anniversary or birthday event, you're always going to be free. It's always open for that. And so kudos to Tom Havistrow in true NBA fashion. He got married in the end of July so that he would never have to say, oh, I got to miss the NBA finals or I got to miss summer league or I got to miss training camp or whatever for this. I'm here for it. The funny thing was during the bubble, I don't know if you remember, but like, 
Caruso, I want to say, his sister was getting married. And then there was someone else who was having a child. And they ended up having to miss games. And people went nuts. Like, oh, how could they? Well, they actually planned this so that it wouldn't get in the way. But of course, we had a a Nexus event Mm -hmm. happen to the world and things had to change. So shout out to Tom for being Mr. Basketball right there. Mr. NBA. His calendar is in tune with the NBA calendar. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this conversation with Jay Adonde. He's an absolute legend in the media world. And he took us back to a different landscape in the league, a different commissioner with a different set of skills (laughs) at his most powerful and really something that has never happened before or since. J.A. called it his sterniest. Stern at his sterniest. So coming up next on Truth Tellers, the Joe Smith saga. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity in the grave lie not in the truth. But what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. Keeps them up nice. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man. You can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. All right, it's a long time coming to bring in our next guest, truth teller himself, maybe the biggest truth teller on the NBA beat ever, <laughs> J.A. Adande. Professor. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Basketball Illuminati. Thanks, Tom. I don't know if it's truth teller insight provider. How about that? <laughs> You're literally teaching people how to tell the truth in a fair, disciplined, and intrepid manner. You are the guy who's literally influencing the media as we speak. We've entrusted the next generation of truth tellers to you, Professor Adande. The responsibility is yours to rear a new crop of these intrepid reporters, as Tom called them, and to make sure that they don't fall into the same fallacies and muck that the current state of journalism has fallen into. Keep fighting the good fight. Well, muck's not necessarily bad in journalism if you're raking the muck, right? Mm. (laughs) You need a good muck raker. But yeah, you don't want to be in the morass or in the slime, right? You don't want to be part of that. So we've been seeing some interesting contracts in the NBA this year. James Harden is taking a little bit of a lower salary to help out the 76ers. And maybe some other teams are a little upset by this or a little unnerved that they have a star player who's like, yeah, you do your thing and I'll come back whenever and we'll just have this like handshake, wink, wink, nod, nod. The biggest wink, wink, nod, nod in NBA history, you covered it. And it was so bad what happened here on the Joe Smith story. So I'm looking at an LA Times story, October 28th, 2000, your byline, Jay Adande, the opening line. Now that the World Series is out of the way, we can concentrate on the saga of Joe Smith's secret contract, the most interesting story in sports right now. Jay, let's unpack the Joe Smith saga. (laughs) 
I thought you were going to unpack my lead. Just the fact <laughs> it shows you how far we've come in 22 years. Of, like I was referencing the World Series. In a basketball column. Yeah. Once upon a time, kids. The World Series was like a really important deal in October. Now, not so much. <laughs> you said that NBA Commissioner David Stern didn't just spank the Minnesota Timberwolves for their clandestine deal that violated the league's salary cap. He punished them Old Testament style. Mm. So Joe Smith signed three consecutive one-year deals to circumvent the cap with the Minnesota Timberwolves. Now, this isn't like KG we're talking here. This is Joe Smith, a solid role player, big man. And under this wink, wink, nudge, nudge deal, he was going to sign an 80 plus million dollar deal with the Minnesota Timberwolves after the three years, which would have given him bird rights and he would be able to get signed over the cap. And of course, what happens? An agent feud spills out and screws it all up. And this is just juicy. Like it is a fit for Hollywood script. So can you dust off the cobwebs and explain what happened here? Well, it was a divorce and a lot of stuff comes out of divorces. We've had political, you could argue Barack Obama's presidential run. The origins came from a divorce and stuff that was unearthed in the divorce, not his divorce, obviously, but another politician's divorce. And it unearthed some information that sank that politician and created the opportunity for Barack Obama to win a U.S. Senate seat. The NBA, remember the officiating scandal when they had been downgrading their seats and pocketing the difference from first class? The first class seats. Yep. That came out of a divorce. In this case, though, it wasn't love loss or woman scorn. It was agents divorcing. <laughs> and so Andrew Miller was with Eric Fleischer. And in the breakup of that, there came some documentation. And that's the thing, Tom, it wasn't a wink, wink. <laughs> there was all kinds of records. It was in writing. There was a paper trail. <laughs> now, Jay, do you remember why it was in writing? This is one of my favorite, favorite tidbits about the story. Do you remember why they had it in writing? I don't remember. Fill me in. They had it in writing. Because at the time, the representatives for Joe Smith were worried that the Timberwolves would not keep their word. Of course. Because the man giving them their word was Glenn Taylor. And I shit you not, they were worried he was going to die before it was time to make good on that oh, deal. Oh, no. <laughs> 22 years later, he is still with us. <laughs> He's just now getting ready to hand over the team. So, yeah. That's the irony. I didn't know that aspect of it, I mean, but yeah, the, the fact that they're worried about somebody somebody dying when he still managed to stick around two decades longer. But that was the thing, Tom. Everything used to be wink-wink. Probably the most famous example of that was Danny Manning. He's drafted number one by the Clippers out of Kansas. Mm -hmm. Tears his ACL while he's with the Clippers. He's traded to Atlanta. But then he signs a below-market deal with the Phoenix Suns for like one year, three and a half million dollars. Mm -hmm. And Everyone, it's like out there. There's people on the record saying, yeah, well, we fully expect they're going to take care of him. It's obvious they're going to take care of him. But then something unexpected happens. He tears his ACL again. Mm -hmm. And yet they still sign him to like a $40 million contract or stomachs or it might even be like 80. They still sign him to the full value as if he was a sought after free agent when he's a guy who had had now two ACL tears. And so that was patently obvious that they had a deal in place that they were going to take care of him no matter what. That's why they changed the rule that you needed to be with the team for right. three so, years to have full bird rights as opposed to the one year because of Danny Manning. Exactly. It was a loophole, right? 
So Dan Fagan, who plays a role in this Joe Smith story, he was the one who really first took advantage of this loophole. Was it with John Conkak? <laughs> I'm trying to remember who they did with. They put the escape clause in. So in order to take advantage of, again, the bird rights at the time, you can re-sign your own free agent for any amount, regardless of the salary cap. This is before there were max salaries. So what they used to do, they'd sign like a seven-year $20 million contract, but it would have an escape clause after year one. Yep. They'd exercise the escape clause. Opt out. Guess what? Now they're a free agent, able to sign with the Larry Bird rights for anything. And now they'd re-up for like six years and $80 million. So that was happening all the time. And that's what gave rise to the wink, wink phrase. So it's exercised with Danny Manning is probably the most egregious example because you got a guy with no ACLs left. And so Stern is on the watch for something like this, right? But now you've got documentation that comes out from this agent split. And like I said, Stern made an example of the Timberwolves. It's funny now, everybody's talking about all the draft capital that the Timberwolves gave up in the Rudy Gobert deal. In this case, at least they got a player in exchange. <laughs> this time, they have nothing to show for it. They were sanctioned five draft picks. Three and a half million dollars, and Kevin McHale had to stay away from the team for a year. That's why I said it was Old Testament. We'd never seen anything like this for a violation that really, it's not like it was that egregious. It didn't cost the Miami Heat this much when they tampered. They were found guilty of tampering with the Knicks when they brought Pat Riley in, mm -hmm. uh, or tampering with Pat Riley, I guess. So when they brought Pat Riley away from New York to bring him in to coach the Heat, everyone was talking about it. Before the season was over, like, oh yeah, Pat Riley's going to Heat. So it was just out there. It was blatant. And so, yeah, they got caught tampering and it was like, I don't know, like a million dollars, but it certainly wasn't five picks. And that was more landscape shifting than this. And yet Stern picked this time to exact really the most egregious points. I was thinking this was David Stern at his David Sterniest. <laughs> <laughs> he really punished the Timberwolves for this. He was not having it. Well, because he had receipts too. And it made them look not bad, but the fact that they hadn't caught this beforehand and now that it's playing out in court and it's actually in discovery that they can point to this and say, <laughs> you guys were dumb enough to codify this in writing, in writing that you were going to circumvent the salary cap. The guy was going to die, Tom. What do you want? <laughs> so my favorite quote in this is Kevin McHale, who said, I haven't looked at a contract in the last four and a half years. <laughs> nice. That's your president of basketball ops. It's great to hear from your general manager. That's what you want to hear. The other one is, quote, there are eight to 10 teams that do this all the time. They're just good at it. We're bad. <laughs> Oh, my God. So he's alleging that 10 teams are already doing this, David Stern. Of course, it's true. Obviously, everyone was doing it. They just were smarter about it. So when you were covering the beat, was there anything that popped off the page quite like the Joe Smith contract? I guess in retrospect, you're like, yeah, that was kind of weird. The Danny Manning one you just mentioned, but... Were there other things that you had heard from other executives that there were below deck compensations? You would just hear it all the time. And again, you'd hear the, oh yeah, I'm sure they got a wink, wink there. It's funny because the Jim McElvain contract, which actually wound up being another one that was really influential in the league. So I covered Jim McElvain when he was with the still Washington Bullets, you know, backup center. And his agent touted Jim McElvain had like the Highest block shots per 48 minutes. Played like, I don't know, 12 minutes a game. He blocked a couple of shots. This is why I'm not a big per 48 guy. If you extract his per 48 block shots, it was one of the best in the league, if not the best in the league. I'll never forget, though. I'm talking to his agent, and he says, his next contract, it's going to start at the maximum starting amount that we can start him at, and it's going to have the maximum allowable increases per year, and it's going to be a seven-year contract. This is what we're getting. 
And he sounded very confident heading into free agency with his client, who I didn't think there'd be that big a demand for. But lo and behold, when he signed, he signed for the exact terms that his agent had told me he was going to sign for. And he signs with the Seattle Supersonics. Sean Kemp is completely alienated by this. He'd been wanting a big contract. The money goes to Jim McElvain, a backup center. And that basically was the beginning of the end of Sean Kemp's time in Seattle. He was so put off that he wanted out. So there went the Peyton Kemp era in Seattle over this contract, which was it predetermined even before free agency started? I don't know. All I know is his agent told me exactly what he was going to get. And that's exactly what he signed for. What was the uproar, J.A., when Stern's ruling came out? If any, was there any uproar? How was the reaction league-wide to what ultimately was the punishment for something that we all acknowledge everybody does? It was like a damn, just because <laughs> of the harshness of it. That's what I wrote about. I was in L.A. I didn't cover the Timberwolves, but I was just like, man, David Stern just brought down the hammer on him. And it was fascinating to me to see a commissioner exert this type of wrath on a franchise. People were talking about it. It was the talk of the league for a while. I'm trying to think of the effect. I mean, it's not like it deterred anyone. You still know. We see it to this day, right? This player is going to end up here. Also, how about when free agency starts? Within 30 seconds of the market being open, they've somehow managed to agree to these exorbitant deals. Jalen Brunson, anybody? Don't even have a chance to run it through the lawyer, you know, to make sure everything, (laughs) all the commas and the decimals are in the right place. To have your accountants check nothing. You're telling me you successfully negotiated $100 million contract, $80 million contract, $200 million contract in a matter of minutes. Okay. But isn't this different, though, than just negotiating before the clock begins? Yes and no. It's still a promise of something before you're allowed to make that promise. So in that sense, it's the same. But again, this was a signed contract. I mean, you don't see these type of things mainly because you don't have these contracts with the escape clauses. Right. The way things are structured now, it's not a matter of, all right, we'll sign you for this amount, then you're going to opt out and we're going to re-sign you for this higher amount. It really got exposed, though, the time <laughs> Danny Manning was broken goods, and yet they still paid him the full freight. Jay, I'm curious as to what you would imagine David Stern's reaction would be like to some of those strike of midnight deals that you just talked about. You know, the idea that you could come to terms. My favorite isn't when they come to terms with a player and a team at 1201. But when they come to terms with a player and a team and another team because it's a sign and trade at 1201. <laughs> like, okay, I get it. You might have said to Lonzo Ball, 70 million. He said, deal. But then the part where like, and San Antonio agrees to send this and accept this. That's the part that doesn't sit well with me. Now it's a conspiracy, right? Now you've got multiple teams involved. Yeah. <laughs> Conspiring to skirt the CBA rules. How would Stern have reacted? Some of this stuff was going on, the more modern stuff we've talked about while he was still in charge. He relaxed on a lot of things. We don't use the term relaxed with David Stern a lot, but he relaxed and reformed. So, for example, again, he used to be a big proponent of guys staying with their teams. And that's one of the reasons why the Larry Bird exemption existed was they really wanted to encourage and incentivize guys staying with their teams. It pained him to see stuff like the decision. But when he saw what it did for the interest in the league, how it made the NBA into a 12-month sport, how whole you know, economies basically arose around speculating about where guys were going to go. He told me once, I don't know if it was when I was walking, I remember talking to him and we were in Salt Lake City for something. 
he said, I'm a reformed guy now when it comes to staying. I used to be adamant that they stay <laughs> enlightened, reformed, enlightened, you know, because he saw the value in it. But also, it's not just the media attention, but you're giving hope to other fan bases too. Think about all those teams that were hoping they would get LeBron James. Mm -hmm. You would have to clear out salary cap space, right? So you'd have to strip down your roster or take on a bunch of expiring contracts and you'd have to suffer for a year. But it offered you the prospect of getting a player. So you could keep that fan base engaged. So that was good for the league. But mostly the, the chatter and the speculation and the interest in where these guys were going to go. He came to recognize that this was good for the league. So if there was some chicanery that came with it, <laughs> skirting the rules, I think late stage, later in his career, David Stern was okay with that. But not this version of David Stern in October of 2000. No, no. He wasn't having it. He was out for blood. He was out for blood. Jay, I want to ask you about the biggest victim in this tragedy. One Kevin Garnett, whose Herculean effort turned the Timberwolves into a legitimate playoff team, made a run to the Western Conference Finals. In the middle of all this. Couldn't he have used a few first-round picks? Yeah. So that's the thing. I was thinking about this and I kind of went like, oh, they're done. You know, they're finished. They're buried. Like, actually, no, the, the best was yet to come. Right. Mm -hmm. They go to the Western Conference Finals in 2004. They were forced to do what Pat Riley's approach has been the whole time. Picks or no picks. You have to fill out your roster through trades and free agents. Right. So Pat Riley has never been one to care for the draft or having a bunch of picks, stockpiling picks. He wouldn't be upset if they had to lose picks. And as it turned out, it was the best thing to happen to the Timberwolves because they brought in veterans. Most notably, Sam Cassell, who for a 13-year stretch, low-key was the best thing that could happen to your franchise because the Houston Rockets, the first <laughs> team he was with, yeah. they win two championships with Sam Cassell, obviously the peak of their franchise. He goes to the Milwaukee Bucks. They get to the conference finals. They're a shot away from going to the NBA finals with Sam Cassell on the roster. Their best run since the Kareem days in the early 70s, mm -hmm. generational performance by the Bucks with Sam Cassell. And then he goes to Timberwolves and they go to the conference finals. And then he ends his career with the Boston Celtics and they go to the NBA finals, win the championship. He wasn't really playing by that point, but clearly you were better off for having said, oh, he goes to the Clippers and they win a playoff series. Just getting to the second round was big for the Clippers. Multiple franchises, either their best results ever or their best results in decades, came with Sam Cassell on the roster. So that's a big part of the story. They also had Latrell Sprewell. And then part of it, maybe Kevin Garnett was just that good at that point, regardless of who he had around him. But he had some good veteran players around him, most notably Sam Cassell, who if he doesn't get hurt in that Western Conference Finals, maybe they beat the Lakers. The Lakers didn't exactly blow them out of that series, but Cassell was wounded down the stretch and they didn't have enough firepower. But then it just really dropped off after that. There's a couple of things that happened. So when this thing came out, Davidson voided Joe Smith's one-year deal, the third such deal that he had. Then to this one, he was going to have the full bird right. <laughs> and I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for those <laughs> darn agents getting a divorce. <laughs> Joe Smith goes on to sign a one-year, basically $2.3 million contract, same amount, with the Pistons. At the end of that year, he actually goes back to Minnesota, signing a six-year deal, $34 million, I believe that was a mid-level exception, ah. but it didn't matter <laughs> because, first of all, it was a fraction of what they had promised him right. in the original plan. He's who you weep for. I don't weep for Kevin Garnett in this story. The true victim in this is Joe Smith. He lost $50 million. So he loses $50 million there, 
But you got to realize he'd been losing money or missing out on money since he came into the league. So he comes in that first year of the rookie salary cap. Yes. The year before him, Glenn Robinson gets drafted, number one overall, and he signs for $69 million over 10 years. They institute the rookie scale the next year. So Joe Smith, number one overall by the Warriors, they give him three years for $8.53 million. That's the most he could have made. Then he turns down an $80 million extension by the Warriors. Now we're in the big make it rain era of the NBA, late 90s. <laughs> wait, 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 Jay, hold on. But he turned it down. Right. So why should I feel bad for him for turning that money down? Well, because he thought the money was out there, and it was. The Timberwolves were going to give him $80 million. In three years? If someone says, <laughs> I'm going to give you a ham sandwich today or a ham sandwich three years from now, I'm taking the ham sandwich today. Because you think you can do better, right? <laughs> why did Juan Soto just turn down $440 million? Because he thinks he can do better. Joe Smith thought he could do better at the time, and he probably wasn't that far off. Somebody was willing to give him $80 million, right? The money's out there. Also, Maze, because the ham sandwich that's being offered to you is from the Golden State Warriors, mm. which at the time is like the bum in the back alley saying, I got a ham sandwich for you. <laughs> you don't want that ham sandwich. And the Timberwolves <laughs> were a three-star Michelin restaurant, or what are you telling me here? At the time, Timberwolves are 10 years old. The Warriors are a million years old. And for longer than the Timberwolves have been alive, they've been bad. Number two, the Timberwolves have just drafted this generational guy in Kevin Garnett. We're far enough in there to know that he is different and he's going to change the fortunes of his franchise. He is the big ticket, yes. Also, Kevin McHale and Flip Saunders, fairly newish to the scene and have already given us an ideal that this thing is going to be different and so much better. Sorry, I'm just laughing about Kevin McHale not reading a contract. Oh, man, that's, that's beautiful. He's a visionary GM executive. He doesn't read the contracts. At the time, not that crazy of a statement, right? So then you throw all these on to, oh, by the way, they're probably going to move the team to New Orleans, new management. I'm betting on the future here, baby. The funniest part of J.A.'s write-up is the part where he says, don't go Googling Timberwolves and playoffs anytime soon. I said, don't put it in your... You're not going to get any matches in your internet search engine. Oh. <laughs> Very 2000s terminology there. 20 CB, I mean. Wow. That was before Google had become a verb. I'm impressed you even got internet search engine in the article, to be honest. Very Y2K of me, right? Don't expect the playoffs in the Minnesota Timberwolves aim away message. <laughs> yeah. They're not going to be there. They're going to be away from the playoffs for the next 20 years. <laughs> it does feel like this team was going to be locked into the basement because they wouldn't have those five picks. But what's interesting also is that Stern softened a little bit. He gave back a couple of those picks. So the 2003 pick they gave back and 2005, they got Rashad McCants. Why do you think Stern did that? Was it a matter of, hey, I'm sorry what I did. You guys paid your dues. And now that you guys have played nice, we're going to give back those picks. It seemed like an un stern thing to do. He was softening. That's like I said, 2000 as stern at his sterniest. He was hot. But he did start to mellow. You know, he he's still coming off the, the lockout in 2000, right? 
the lockout had gone into either late 98 or early 99. Oh, you know what? Garnett was already on that contract. Yep. A lot of people think the lockout was in response to that contract. It was. So blame Taylor. Here's a chance to get back at him. You know, maybe this is Stern getting back at Taylor on behalf of the other owners. Because remember, they signed that Kevin Garnett contract. That's what led to the max contract. Yep. Signed $126 million. And Glenn Taylor himself said, well, you know, that's more than the entire franchise was worth at the time. <laughs> Everyone's like, this is getting out of control. So they have the lockout. First time the NBA had ever missed games due to a work stoppage. Who's responsible for it? Who got it to this place? Glenn Taylor. You mentioned that this might have been David Stern at his sterniest. Can we get like a top three, top five, Jay Adande? Sterniest moments. David Stern at his sterniest? I got two in mind. Yeah, I got one, definitely. There was a time when we're in Oklahoma City for a playoff series. Some coaches had been yapping about the officiating, you know, and Stern, for some reason, is Oklahoma City and he has a press conference. He blamed himself. He said, Pat Riley and Phil Jackson, they're the ones that kind of got a lot of the conspiracy theory stuff going and whining about the officiating in the media to try to gain an advantage. And this is going on in like 92 and 93. Stern said, I should have nipped it in the bud back then, but I let it go. And that now we're here where we are and I'm not going to have it anymore. I just remember he admitted he had been a little bit lax in the past and won't be anyone who does it again. And so Stan Van Gundy caught one. He caught David Stern at his sterniest. The quote from Van Gundy is, this is the system David Stern and his minions like. So that's oh. the system we have. I certainly can't have an opinion because David Stern, like a lot of leaders we've seen in the world lately, doesn't really tolerate other people's opinion or free speech or anything. So I'm not really allowed to have an opinion. So it's up to him. Stern, he had his response, you know, said some things behind closed doors. And then on the air on ESPN radio with Colin Coward, he says, I would render a guess that we won't be hearing from Stan Van Gundy the rest of the season. That was cold. I would just make render a guess that we're not going to be hearing from him for the rest of the season. Oh, boy. All right. What you're saying now is, now that's pretty serious now. No, I think that he... When he stops and reads what he said and realizes what he did, he will say no more. Will you levy? What what kind of influence can you levy here? I mean, you're. Oh, I have whatever influence the bylaws and constitution give me, and they're substantial. But I have a feeling that some modicum of self restraint will cause Stan right. and the team for which he works to rein in his. No, aberrant, but... His aberrant behavior. Whoa! Whoa! Maze, which one did you have? For me, it's David Stern stopping the world with the Chris Paul trade. Oh, that's his sterniest moment? That was his biggest brand recognition. Everybody will always remember him, especially if you're a Laker fan. That's one of the biggest moments where you feel like David Stern reached down and just took a championship right out of your hand. See, I thought you were going with the Jim Rome, do you still beat your wife? Me too. <laughs> Have you stopped beating your wife? That's a classic. And also, if we're going to go back into our archives even further, the whole Patrick Ruby situation, Yes. <laughs> where he goes on the interview with Michael Wilbon, J.A. I don't know if you heard about this, but our, our friend Patrick Ruby wrote an article about NBA conspiracies, which was supposed to go to ESPN the magazine, didn't end up there, ended up on Yahoo!, 
then eventually something came out essentially saying there were no conspiracies and <laughs> David Stern was happy to announce that on national television to everybody. Written by Patrick Ruby. That was the best part. Oh, there's a Patrick Ruby that has cleared us of any wrongdoing in any of the conspiracies out there. So the truth is out there. You have to read Patrick Ruby's latest. And this was in the middle of the NBA Finals halftime interview with Michael Wilbon, where he endorses the story that was killed at the league broadcasting yeah. partner at ESPN. Mine was the meeting at the coaches meeting oh. where he <laughs> reveals to everyone at the coaches meeting that part of the new TV deal, they're going to have cameras in the locker room. They're going to do little snippets of their halftime. Then Bulls coach Scott Skiles stands up, raises his hand, says something to the effect of, no disrespect, but the locker is my sacred space. And Stern replied, well, let's see, as he smiled. On the one hand, we have $8 billion from our broadcast partners. And on the other hand, we have Scott motherfucking Skiles. <laughs> <laughs> he lit it to him, telling Skiles to shut the fuck up, and he didn't want to hear any more out of him. <laughs> so I got a David Stern, as you can't imagine him, and that's him singing Jeffrey Osborne songs, so... You know, Jeffrey Osborne, great R&B, legendary singer. He had a famous song, You Should Be Mine, a.k.a. the Woo Woo song. And he told me one time that they were in Seattle for the All-Star game. He's at a reception, a dinner, and he's performing. He's going around singing, when you woo woo woo, and he's asking different people in the audience, he's holding up the mic and getting them to sing that part. And he gets to Stern and he has Stern singing. I confirmed it with David Stern. I said, were you singing with Jeffrey Osborne at the All-Star weekend in Seattle? And Stern looks at me like horse. And he's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you woo, woo, woo. <laughs> he kind of half said it, half sang it. And I wish I had it on recording. I wish I had David Stern singing the woo, woo song. <laughs> That's Stern kind of the opposite of the version that we've been talking about. <laughs> and you woo, woo. Jay, if someone were to come to you and say, I can prove that this conspiracy is true and it definitely happened and it's real. I'm not saying you believe this to be real. I'm saying if someone were to come to you and say X conspiracy theory in the NBA is actually true, which one is it that you firmly believe that if someone told you this is true, you'd be like, yeah, totally believe that. I'm not saying it is. Jay, basically they said there's one conspiracy theory that is actually 100% true. Which one would you be like, I knew it. It's this one, isn't it? There's nothing that hasn't come to light that I'm suspicious about. The NBA is the leakiest league, right? We know everything that's going on at all times, practically. None of the behind the scenes stories I've heard ever involve conspiracies. They just involve things that can't come to light. What does that mean that can't come to light? Whoa. <laughs> reputations would be damaged. Not like a criminal act would be uncovered. Just reputations would be damaged. Oh, you mean like a player, maybe the best player in the league being suspended for oh, 18 months or so and having No, a no, no. That's a reputation that gets damaged. Yep. Yeah, you know. It's not even conspiracy. It's vast deception, right? That's the one I would want to know if it's not what we've been told. But I also feel like if there was something that we hadn't been told about it, somebody would have told us, you know, too many people would have had to be involved in it. Oh, okay. Here's one I'd like to know. I had heard that a player had tested positive for a banned substance, not performance enhancing, recreational substance, and that David Stern was furious and that there had been several 
other positive tests and that he had just had it and he wanted to send a message. There was going to be a wave of suspensions. He was going to just drop the hammer and suspend a bunch of high profile players because he wanted to clean up the league of all this drug use. And it was nowhere near, you know, what was going on in the 1970s, right? Right. I think having lived through that, he was afraid of to get to that point again, and nothing ever came of it. Someone talked him off the ledge? I guess so. The funny thing is, the person I heard it from would have been in a position to know, but nothing ever came of it. Hmm. I would like to know if that was actually true. I never had any confirmation that it was true. I heard from a good source that it was happening. It never came about. So I'd like to know how close we were to having that scenario actually come true. I love a new conspiracy submission, right? We've just grown the pantheon. Put it on the list, boys. Stern was about to suspend a bunch of high-profile guys for drug violations, but then was eventually talked off the ledge. It ties back to a sterny moment. That we didn't get. Oh, <laughs> one of the sterniest. Perhaps the sterniest. Too sterny for the public. divorce from ESPN. Was that amicable on both sides or did that have to be mediated? Yeah, no, it was amicable. I wouldn't call it a divorce. I would say I got out of my contract early. What do you think marriage is? I wasn't married to ESPN, much like I don't believe Liz Cambage was married to the LA Sparks. Someone told me that that wasn't the first time that's happened this season. Huh? That when Tina Charles got cut, they called it a contract divorce where are we what is this maze what, what is this oh i mean is this a super woke reaction to people saying oh players aren't employees they're partners is, is that what we're doing here and so because it's a partnership it's a divorce i have to go the other way i mean i think you know exactly where we are and it's a little place called the manosphere manosphere this is the patriarchy okay Uh huh. We didn't hear about LeBron divorcing the Heat. No. We didn't hear about Kevin Durant divorcing the Warriors. No. They left him. Sometimes it's not a divorce. Like a man leaves a marriage. LeBron went to go get a pack of smokes and just never came back. None of this parting ways amicably. None of this conscious uncoupling. LeBron left Miami with the kids, Shabazz Napier and Josh McRoberts. Like, how am I supposed to raise these by myself? (laughs) 